the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a joyful night we had last night, for those of you who were able to be with us. It was really a great uh, expression of unity. Also, I experienced the goodness of God, that we have this great community between us, um, because it's something that has grown more recently over the years after some time of uh, splinterization has happened in all of our society. So it's very joyful. I have a question for you today, which is, why did God make the church? Why did God make the church? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. No, he takes it seriously. That's a good answer, actually. <laughs> so it's a very pertinent question because today is the Sunday after Theophany. And what happened on Theophany is that our Lord was baptized. And in so being baptized, he gave us the pathway into union with him. Because by his entering into the water, he sanctified all waters. And we then, by extension, are baptized in the river Jordan with every baptismal waters, uniting to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit through triple immersion. So he gave us baptism. He gave us the church through baptism. So why did he make the church? The epistle answers that for us today. This is what St. Paul says. He says that Jesus gave spiritual gifts that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what he's describing there is he's describing the church. That some are apostles, some are evangelists, some are pastors and teachers, and all of that is for the equipping of the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is why he gave them the gifts, so that he could equip these saints for their ministry. But why did he do that? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the stature, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is why he gave us the church, so that we could be unified. The church is the mode of our unification. It begins in our baptism. What do we say at the, the baptism service, the epistle? There's neither Greek nor Jew nor male nor female. All have become one in Christ. We are all Christ together. And yet that's also a journey as well because, as he says in the epistle, until we attain the unity of the faith. So it's something that we're still striving towards. The receiving of the Eucharist is an expression of that unity. Each time that we receive the body and blood of Christ, we join ourselves to the body of Christ. We all become one body in Christ. And interestingly, in the liturgy, that same phrase that St. Paul uses, the unity of the faith, which is tinenotitatis pisteos, this phrase is the final litany, the final petition of the liturgy before we receive the Eucharist. It's that final litany before the Lord's Prayer in which we say, 
Having asked for the unity of the faith and the communion of the Holy Spirit, let us commend ourselves and one another and our whole life to Christ our God. So in the litany it says, having asked for the, the unity of the faith. When did we ask for the unity of the faith? This is a final petition. So what before that was us asking for the unity of the faith? Everything. Everything within the liturgy is asking for unity. How often do we say peace, oneness, that we may be one together? Again and again, we're asking for this. And so that final petition says, having asked for the unity of the faith, because that is a prerequisite for our receiving the Eucharist. We know this from the communion prayers. We should have no wrong with anyone. We should have forgiven everyone and sought forgiveness of everyone before approaching the chalice, which is indeed a high bar, but this is what is needed because how can there be multiple Christs, multiple bodies of Christ? If we're all receiving the one body of Christ, but I and you are not united because we have conflict between each other, how can we say it's one body? It's an aberration against the body of Christ if there's any division, any separation. In fact, the word communion, kinonia, it, mean, it comes from two words, and it means common being. Ondos is that second part of the word. A common being. This is how deep our unity together is. Our entire being is one, is common. And this is what communion is. So what is the enemy of our unity, of our communion? You might say the devil. Actually, more precisely, the Greek word ego, I. In English, ego. This is our enemy against unity, is our own ego. Everything that I do, that I want, that is for my desires, invariably it comes into conflict with the people around me. And so I cause division within the body of Christ because of my own ego. That communal life that we desire in, uh, in the, the body of the church is something that we also see oftentimes in monastic life in which they live common meals, common services, common work, common everything together. Today we celebrate St. George of Hosevar, St. George the Hosevite who is uh, a monastic in the Holy Land. This is a monastery right on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. As you're descending from Jerusalem down to Jericho on the old road is this monastery that's been there for many centuries. It was started in the fifth century, or the sixth century, rather. And St. George uh, went there as a, as a young man and stayed there for many years, then went and lived as a hermit along the Jordan River, and then eventually ended up back at the monastery. You can read about his life in the bulletin there. But St. George would preach to the, the monks about the importance of unity and of the importance especially of running away from pride, from the ego. He said, believe me, I say, even if someone were able to make heaven and earth anew, but regarded his neighbor with proud contempt, he would labor in vain and his portion would be with the hypocrites. A man cannot approach God unless he is at peace with his neighbor. The sins and passions all have pride as their common source, 
and they lead to death, while obedience and submission to the Lord are life and joy and light. And this account goes on to say that he taught his monks to vie with one another in humility by keeping themselves from all criticism or jealousy of one another, so that thus to attain holy charity and the bond of perfection, that great unity that we desire in the body of Christ. St. George humbled himself greatly, always pushing away any egotistical thoughts. Judgment, as we talked about last week, judgment is a hallmark of our ego. One who does not have ego, one truly humble, has no judgment of anyone, anywhere, at any time. Not to mention no envy, no jealousy, all of these other things that we struggle with. So oneness ultimately is placing our will within God's will. Because if we're all in the body of Christ, what that means is we're all uniting our individual wills into this one will, which is the will of God providence of God. So how do I make my ego diminish? I'll give some practical things. First of all, be vigilant to look out for conflict. Wherever there is conflict with another human being, there's ego involved in that. We think of it like conflict is this wave coming at you and in our humility we dive under the wave. Then the conflict passes right by us. But if instead we stand up with our ego and our pride, and we encounter more conflict. Another is to look to the liturgy. We say these words again and again and again, and we say the words again and again, literally, because we need to hear these words again and again. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Peace is the sister word of harmony, harmony or of unity. So it is in peace. It is in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ and with all of humanity that I should be approaching the liturgy. And the, the liturgy gives us so many other words to guide us towards that unity. Another is to not draw attention to ourselves, to empty ourselves. To be truly self-emptying is a hallmark of a Christian and it's something that we see in the lives of all of the saints and of Christ himself who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. I'll close with a quote from, of all people, C.S. Lewis, because this is a profound quote that he offers about self-emptying. He says, this is from Mere Christianity, but there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether, your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds it for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, 
without caring two pence about how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without having ever noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose yourself and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have will not be given away. Nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. <laughs>